Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 24. Please turn there in your Bibles or follow along on the screen behind me as I read the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told, Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hope you all have had a good week. This week, uh, I took my family to the Texas State Fair. Just a raise of hands. How many people have experienced that out there? Pretty good number, and then there's a, a good number that's not experienced that yet. I highly recommend. Uh, one thing I, I will say, though, is, you know, the Texas State Fair is like the, the highlight of some people's year, and uh, with, with some good reason. I mean, it's, you know, there's great food. Uh, it's, it's a pretty entertaining environment. But my wife and I were both in agreement as we're walking through, you know, the maze of all the, the lights and uh, the fried delicacies that are at the State Fair, that that really wasn't the highlight of our week, that our, the highlight of our week hadn't yet happened. It, you know, we hadn't come back together for worship, and I, I don't mean that, I really do mean that sincerely, I should say. Um, this is the highlight of my week right here, is being with you and getting to worship Christ with you. Getting to, to sit right here and, and hear your voices sing praise to God is incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's good for my soul. And so I, I just want to thank you for, for being here and participating in worship this morning. I want to thank the, the men and women who showed up early this morning to get things set up and the men and women who are serving right now so that we can open up the Word of God together and focus on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us at the cross. I want to thank the men and women who are serving after we close in prayer <laughs> to get everything put back together and, and onto a, a truck and a trailer. I mean, I, I want to thank you for allowing this highlight of my week and hopefully yours, right? So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, full of gratitude and joy. Last week, we looked at the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2, and we basically concluded with this, that the only way that we can rid ourselves of pride, which is a bad thing, and rid ourselves of false humility, which is a deceptive thing, and grow in true humility 
is through looking at the holiness of our God and the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. The humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's always been God, always will be God the Son, and he humbled himself by adding humanity to himself. The word says, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by obeying, get this, his own law perfectly. And then meeting his own law's demands by dying on a cross for the penalty of our sin. That's what we deserved. And God responded to Christ's humility, his perfect obedience. How? By highly exalting him. Doesn't get any higher than where God the Father has exalted the Son. He's at the right hand of the Father. And why is he exalted? And, and how should we respond to the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ? We should humbly bow and confess that he is Lord. We should repent of our sin and put our trust in him alone for our salvation. We should submit to his lordship. Submission to Christ's lordship is not something that happens after salvation. It is what happens at the moment when you're saved. We should joyfully obey Christ's commands. Because he is Lord. And the only way we're going to do that effectively and continually is if we keep the cross of Christ in the crosshairs of our sight. That's the only way that we would have any hope of denying ourselves, of picking up our cross and following, aka obeying Christ, is when we look at His perfect obedience for us. That's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says this, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us looking to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God so i've entitled this morning's sermon joyful obedience Joyful obedience. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the first thing I want you to see here this morning in our text, between verses 12 and 14, the main idea that Paul is driving at is that obedience to Christ is a command. Obedience is a command. Kind of sounds funny to even say that. A command and obey, they, they sound the same, right? But obedience is commanded of us. That's what Paul's emphasizing. That in response to Christ's perfect obedience, the gospel, that we are to walk in obedience to Christ. And I've found it's kind of funny. Sometimes this shocks people to hear that. They're like, whoa, 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 is that legalism? No, 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 it's not. It's not legalism. It is responding to Christ's perfect obedience by listening to him and following him, trusting and obeying one step at a time, 
with everything that he taught, everything that he commanded. It shouldn't be shocking. Because the last words that Jesus said before he ascended on high and sat at the right hand of God were this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he commands from that position of authority. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Listen, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That word observe is not teaching them to look at the commandments. It is teaching them to look and know them and keep them, to obey them. So obedience is both a response to the gospel, to Christ's obedience for our sake. It is also a command. And we're to obey all of God's commands. They're to be obeyed at all times. Why? Because Christ is with us always to the end of the age. The reality is we're going to stumble and fall. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to disobey along the way. And so there's need for what we did earlier, which is confessing our sin, getting our eyes on the cross, truly repenting, forsaking sin, trusting in his mercy. And through the kindness of God that's shown to us in Christ at the cross, we bear much fruit. By continuing in repentance. In verse 12, Paul says, As you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we're going to talk about that phrase much more in a bit. But first I want to just say this. It's, it's parallel. Obey. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. They're synonymous. It's the same thing. What does it mean to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling? It means to obey Christ and his commandments. Y'all see that? Just parallel, synonymous. What are we to obey? Well, that should be obvious, but in case it's not, it is all that he has commanded. It is God's moral law. And John Stott, a theologian of old, once said this. He said, the apostles who proclaimed the gospel gave clear and concrete ethical instruction as well. The law and the gospel were thus related in their teaching. If the law is a, quote, schoolmaster, he's referencing Galatians chapter 3, to bring us to Christ, placing us under such discipline and condemnation as to make Christ our only hope of salvation, Christ now sends us back to the law to tell us not how to be saved, how to live as a saved believer in Christ. Even the purpose of his death, Stott writes, for our sins was not only that we might be forgiven, but that having been forgiven, and then he quotes Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we are called to obey. How are we to obey? Well, Romans 8 right here touches on it a little bit, that we're not to obey in our own strength, but we're to obey in the Holy Spirit. We're to obey by faith. But this section, 12 through 14, here in Philippians, it emphasizes more on how we are to obey. And the first thing I want you to see at the beginning of verse 12 is this, that we are to obey as beloved children of God. See, he opens up, he says, therefore, my beloved, or my beloved. And Paul is addressing the Philippians as his beloved, meaning Paul loves the Philippians, again, like a spiritual father loves his spiritual children. But that phrase, agapetos, or beloved, that, that should like, the alarm should go off when we hear that. Because the entirety of the New Testament, when using that phrase, is primarily driving at we are the beloved of God. That God has demonstrated his love for us in Christ. That's just who we are through faith in Christ. Beloved children of God now. That's not something you inherit default when you're born into this world. That's what happens when you're born again through reception of the gospel. So we don't obey to become children of God. We obey because we now are God's children through faith in Christ. That's a, very, that's a key difference. 
to be made. We don't obey for God's love. We obey from God's love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. How? And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to bear the wrath for our sins, to take on the punishment we deserve so that we wouldn't have to. 1 John 4, 19 says, in summary, we love because He first loved us. And then John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. It's a privilege. It's a right. We have to be adopted into God's family. And we are through faith in Christ. Thus, our obedience is to be carried out not to earn God's favor, but from God's favor that's in Christ. It is to be carried out from faith and in faith, trusting that God knows what's best. He knows what's going to be most glorifying to Him. He knows what's going to be best for us. He knows what's going to express his glory to the lost world best, and that is obedience to his commands. Once a person has become a child of God through faith in Christ alone, they, cease, they will never cease to be a child of God. That they cannot lose their salvation. A child forever of God's eternal life with God. And their obedience to the Father is therefore never meant to cease. We're to continue in obedience. And so that's the second thing I want you to see. How are we to obey? We're to obey continually and with integrity. Look at the text. It says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what Paul's getting at here is he kind of gives them a a compliment first and then an encouragement to continue on. He's really insinuating that the Philippians have been a relatively obedient bunch, okay? I can just imagine having read 1st and 2nd Corinthians and read Galatians and the rest of the New Testament that, you know, there were some folks that it was probably harder to love at times. It was harder to shepherd. Um, The Corinthians and Galatians, you know, being some of those people, maybe for Paul. But the Philippians, it was was a joy for him to love and shepherd them uh, because they were just sounds like pretty decent group of uh, believers, right? They they weren't like walking in heinous sin. Um, But Paul does remind them, he says, you know, don't slow down. Like, don't don't take your foot off the pedal on obeying to Christ and walking in Christ. He says, keep the pedal down. And he reminds them that true obedience is not obedience at all if it is only done in the sight of people for the approval of people. It must be done in the sight of God for his pleasure, not his approval. So the question that you and I have to ask ourselves, is so uncomfortable to ask this question, but it's, it's necessary, is who are you when no one's looking? Who are you when no one's around? And I was really thinking about this, and I thought of another question. It just takes it to a deeper level. Hypothetical, but what would you do, hypothetically, If, for one day, an entire 24-hour period, you could do whatever you wanted, no one would ever know. They'd never find out. Only you and God would know. What would you do? I hope you wouldn't rob a bank, but you might be tempted. What would you do? And I think the answer to that question really reveals The reality that's in all of our hearts is that we're tempted to do some things on that day that wouldn't honor God, that would be outside of obedience to God's commands. Would you continue in love and fear of God and, and walk in obedience to the best of your ability that day? Would it be just another normal day? Or would you do some outlandish things that afternoon? Because here's a free pass, and your obedience is really tied primarily to primarily to what other people think and not what God thinks? Or would you just obey that day simply to avoid going to prison, simply to avoid the negative consequences of your sin personally? Basically, I'm asking, survey your heart. Is your obedience done in the fear of God, in the fear of man, 
or in the fear of the consequences of your sin. Which brings me to my third point. How are we to obey God? We're to obey him with fear and trembling. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And before we talk about the, the attitude of our heart in fear and trembling, we need to lean into that word work. Because you know what it means? Work. It, it literally is an imperative verb that carries a divine force of command. It is saying, work thoroughly at something. It is saying, take labor at this. It is saying, expend great energy at working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Each of us as believers are called to resist temptation to sin. James chapter 4 verse 7. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. We're called to engage in spiritual disciplines. No one's going to study your Bible for you. No, no one's going to get on their knees and pray for you. People will intercede for you, but, but you and God need to have consistent communication. No one is going to go out and evangelize for you. So that's why they're called disciplines, right? They're the spiritual disciplines. We're called to resist sin. We're called to lean into obedience and so my question again to survey your heart, and I, I ask myself these questions, remember, I'm not, you know, I'm not coming against you, I'm for you, but you need to ask, am I leaning in to the things that God is commanding me, or am I leaning back in a lazy chair, right? Am I a spiritual couch potato, or am I a spiritual athlete like Tom Brady? I know he's retired, but he's still the greatest of all time. You know, what is, what, is the, what is the health of your spiritual life right now? Are you leaned in? Are you leaning back? No one's sitting neutral. We are to work out our salvation. And to work out our salvation is not to, look at me, it's not to work in your salvation. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by our works. It is working out what's already in. It's working out what God worked in. We're working out our salvation. This is speaking of our sanctification, not our justification. It's walking out your salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 10, comes right after verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9, remember, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, and, and that's nothing that we can boast in, right? And then right after saying that, Paul says this, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I love it. It doesn't say created in Christ Jesus for forgiveness, although that's true. Paul's laid that out very clearly in chapters 1 and 2 up to this point. But he's saying you're also saved, not just so that you'd be forgiven, but for good works. God has prepared them for you, he says, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is working out your salvation, walking in the freedom that God has earned for you in Christ. It's not working for salvation. It's working from salvation. You know why I'm being so redundant on this? Because I need you to understand it. I was on a phone call a few weeks back with a man who thought he understood it. And I asked him seven, eight, 19 times maybe, do you think that you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone? Or do you think that you're saved by faith alone in Christ plus my works? I mean, I asked it literally 19 different ways. And he said, finally, after 19 times, he said, yes, 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 plus, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not a result of our works, his works. And yet God calls us as a saved person to work out our salvation through sanctification in cooperation with God. Psalm 2, verse 11, says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You don't typically put those words together, rejoicing and trembling. You don't, you don't put rejoicing and fear typically together, but they're absolutely mingled in the gospel. They're inseparably linked in the gospel. We see God's justice and mercy on display at that cross, don't we? 
And that is to cause us to tremble with tears of joy, with a heart flooded with gratitude, with a heart that is desiring to obey, to honor Christ, to make much of Him in our lives. It is the gospel that eradicates unhealthy fears and anxieties in our hearts, the fear of punishment, the fear of judgment, the fear of man, the fear of death. And it is the same gospel that produces healthy fear in our heart. What fears? The fear of God. That's it. That's all that you are to fear in this lifetime. That's all that you are to tremble about is that God is holy and God is good and God has been merciful to unholy bad people like you and I. We should tremble. We should smile. Again, you don't think of fear and grinning to have a relationship. They do in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should also fear the fatherly discipline that comes when we walk outside of God's design and outside of God's commandments. We should fear his displeasure. We don't want to displease our loving father. We want to honor him in everything. So someone who walks in obedience with fear and trembling is someone who understands the gospel. They just, they get it. They understand who God is. They understand who has commissioned them with the great commission. They take the cross of Christ and his commandments very, very seriously. And so Paul adds this in verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you, that same holy God, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we don't work out our salvation in fear and trembling in isolation. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We grow in sanctification with God's power, with God's Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, we are to work out our salvation not only because God has worked it in to us by His grace, but because God continues to work it out in our lives. Our sanctification is not, listen, it is not let go and let God. It's not. It is lean in and watch God work. It's lean in and watch God work. We see this principle in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which is sin, it's breaking God's law, leading to more lawlessness, you're growing in anti-sanctification. You're getting more ungodly every day. You're giving yourself over to the desires of your flesh. But then Christ saved you. And now what are we called to do? We're supposed to lean in and watch God work. He continues, he says, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, that you be made more and more in the image of Christ practically. As we lean in to God's righteous commands, by faith, God is producing both the will, meaning the desire to do it more and more. Like you begin, you're hungering for more of the word of God. You're, you're hungering for more fellowship with the saints. You're hungering to get into prayer with the Lord and commune with him. He's, he is transforming our will and he is even working in us. He's giving us endurance, energy, empowering us to work out our salvation. And he's taking great pleasure in it too. I love that. I mean, it's in the same way that if you have children, you want your child to grow in righteousness and uprightness that they would walk. How much more does God the Father want us to grow in the same way in reflecting him? He does. He takes joy in it. R.C. Sproul says this. He said, we're saved by grace alone. Amen. We're justified by faith alone. Amen. But having been saved, we don't just wait around to die. Amen. Christianity is about spiritual growth as well, and spiritual growth involves effort. It is the hard work of sanctification. He says, casually attending to the things of the Lord will not result in our nurture. That's like hoping that food will make it into your mouth and not putting a fork in your hand and bringing it to your mouth. 
He says we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that Christ, by His Spirit, is working in us. So in verse 12 and 13, what's Paul doing? He's helping us stay on the straight and narrow and avoiding two ditches on either side of the road. One ditch is that we begin to subtly think, well, you know, if I'm a part of this sanctification process, then maybe I was a part of justification. Maybe I was a part of me being saved. You were not. Justification is monergistic, meaning mono, God alone, saved you by His grace. Sanctification, on the other hand, is synergistic, meaning that God and you are working in cooperation and you are experiencing more and more righteousness in your life because He's at work in you and you're leaning in and you're watching Him work. So one ditch goes, well, maybe I have more of a part of this being saved. You don't. God saved you. The other ditch is this. Well, if God's at work in in me to will and to work for His good pleasure, then Maybe I don't really have a part in sanctification. Wrong. You do. We just read it, right? So we need to lean in and watch him work and avoid those ditches on the sides of the road, the narrow road of obedience and faith to Christ. In verse 14, he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So our obedience, how is it to be done? Not begrudgingly, not with grumbling, not with muttering things under your breath like, oh, all right, I guess we've got to set up some chairs, you know. Oh, all right, well, I guess I better, you know, discipline my children or it's time for family worship, you know. Everybody straighten up. It's to be done not with grumbling but with gratitude. It's so interesting. You know, I, I was studying this, I was thinking about this, and I was like, how do I grumble? Because I grumble, you know. You grumble. Sometimes it's like this. You ever done that? (laughs) I did that this morning, Pastor. Yeah, it happens. Sometimes we're like, oh, gosh, this again. It happens when people in our life aren't typically doing the things that we would do it that way or, or saying the things that we would say it that way. They're just not lining up with how we would do things. They're not following through with their end of the bargain, and it's just bothering us. And what's interesting about grumbling is it's not shouting and yelling. It's kind of mumbled. It's just under your breath. It's, ugh. And the question is, does that matter to God? I mean, I haven't committed murder by my mumbling. It's not like I've gone out and had an affair or done something that the world would say, this is a a terrible, terrible thing. And yet, I tell you, it does matter to God. It's so serious to God that it's recorded in Numbers chapter 14 that God sought to completely destroy the nation of Israel because of their grumbling against Moses and Aaron, which, tune into this, were their leaders, the leaders that God had graciously given them to lead them to where? The promised land. And you know what's interesting? The leaders are taking on the mumbling and they're like, they hear the groans and what do they do? They don't go, God, that's a great idea. Destroy them. I mean, God was promising Moses, I will will carry on the line through your loins. He says, I'll raise up a nation from your family. And Moses intercedes as a foreshadowing of Christ interceding for you and I. Because we've mumbled and we've groaned and we've grumbled. And if we didn't have him to intercede on our behalf at that cross, we would have been condemned. But because he interceded for us, we can be saved through faith in him. Praise God. Grumbling typically comes out against our spouse. It comes out against our parents' children. It comes out against our children, parents. It comes out against our boss at work. It comes out against our pastors. I mean, it comes out against a lot of people in our lives. So what's the, re- what's the response? How should we respond to this command to not grumble? Well, obviously it's not to grumble. But first and foremost, it's to acknowledge that you've grumbled. And it's to confess that. And it's to go to God, go to Christ, and receive mercy. And bear fruit by keeping with repentance. It'd be amazing if, if the welcome mat on your front porch said, welcome, but no grumbling allowed, right? I mean, think about how different our homes would be without grumbling. Kids, are you listening? Don't grumble. Honor God by not grumbling. Be grateful. 
that God has put leaders in your lives? Your parents. Parents, don't grumble. You're modeling to your children that grumbling's okay when you grumble. And let's not call it out on each other and be violent about it. Let's just say, hey, let's be grateful. Let's not grumble. Moving on. When we don't grumble, when we walk in obedience, it's not just a God-pleasing thing. It is a witness to the world around us. That's my second point. Obedience is a witness. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Stop right there. What does obedience do? How is it a witness to the world around us? It turns heads. It turns heads. When you are walking in blamelessness, in innocence, without blemish, less and less sinful, it's turning heads because it's looking different than the sinful world in which everyone else is inhabiting. It is a light in and of itself. I do want to clarify one thing, though. The words blameless, innocent, without blemish, it does not mean that you and I can reach sinless perfection before glorification, before Christ's return. We won't. That's a heresy from the Keswick theology. It's just not, it's not true. It's not what the whole Bible speaks of, right? But the Bible does speak that we're going to grow more and more into Christ's image over time, and then ultimately when he comes, we will be like him. That's what the scripture says. We'll see him as he is. We'll be in a glorified state, totally sinless. So what does it mean that, that we are to be blameless and innocent and children of God if we can't be totally blameless and innocent and children of God? It means that we're to be leaning in, that we're to be growing in holiness by looking at the Holy One. It means that we are to be without obvious moral defects and blatant ethical blemishes that don't honor Christ. They bring dishonor to Christ. It's what keeps people out of churches sometimes because they go, oh, yeah, I've been around Christians. They're no different than us. They just have a meeting that they go to on Sundays. We need to be holy because our Heavenly Father is holy. We're to live increasingly holy lives, it says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That word crooked, it's the word scolios. Does that sound familiar? Scolios. It means winding, curved, twisted. To live a crooked life is to live a life that's outside of God's design. It's not obeying God's commands. And the, the interesting thing is the word scoliosis comes from this. What is scoliosis? It's a condition in the spine where your spine is curved slightly or severely. Slightly, pretty painful, pretty uncomfortable. Severely, could disable you from being able to walk. It could even kill you, actually. It says that the, the spinal curve that's severe puts pressure on the lungs, which prevents you from breathing, which ultimately will kill you. And I don't have an MD, right? I just know that that's fact. And so what happens when we live crooked, twisted lives outside of God's design, wanting to live our way, not God's way, outside of God's will, not wanting to obey our law, not God's law? It, it ultimately destroys us. I mean, it can kill us. And so we need to walk in obedience to God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that is in pain. They're suffering self-inflicted wounds from their sin. And like the brilliance of the moon and the stars in East Texas, at 2 a.m. on a cool, crisp night, no clouds in the sky, we are to shine like the stars in this world. This likely refers to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Daniel and his brothers and sisters were in exile in Babylon. It says this, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So just as Daniel and the Israelites were in exile, we too are in exile. We are homebound. We're on our way to heaven to be with Christ, but we ain't there yet. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. There it is. You know, UNT Frisco was, was built up on this hill in Frisco, and I would drive Preston Road. I'm like, there it is. I didn't have to look for it. And that's how our lives are to be. Our, our obedience to Christ is to be a witness. There he is. There she is. Different from the rest of us. 
not on their high horse in humility, in righteousness, not sin. In the same way, Jesus says, we're to let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We're not just to live obediently. We're, live to live, we're called to live obediently publicly. Outside of the New Testament, this word lights, it's sometimes used as navigational beacons, meaning we're not just to turn heads and stand out. We're actually to direct traffic to the one true God. In the same way as sailors, as they sailed on the ocean, looked to the stars in heaven to direct them to safety. So ask yourself this morning, what are the clouds in your life, whether it be sin or just avoiding people that are not in the family of God? What's, what are the clouds that are blocking the light of Christ in you from being seen by others? Are you living for Christ obediently and publicly? Because part of living obediently is living publicly for Christ. And that really brings me to verse 16. Obedient lips transform hearts. So verse 15, obedient lives transform, or uh, turn heads, rather. But obedient lips, they transform hearts. Obedient lips, they literally perform heart surgery on people. It says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Well, what's the word of life? It's the gospel. What does it mean to hold fast the word of life? It's interesting is it doesn't mean what we can typically think it means. It doesn't mean to hold fast like this. It means to hold it fast, but it's actually holding it forth. The word is epeko. And the more accurate translation is holding forth. Well, what does that mean? It means we're holding forth the gospel to the lost and dying world. Or we're not, right? But we should be. This is call, a call to obedience to Christ. And we're to do it in light of a day on the calendar. There is a day on the calendar, and we don't know what day it is. We know that we're one day closer to it, but it's the day of Christ. It's, it's the day when he returns and judgment takes place. It is the day when evangelism ceases to happen. It's over at that point. And some of you might go, woof, I'm glad that, that that day is coming, right? When evangelism is. But man, lean in while you can, because that day is coming. Lean in with fear and trembling to that obedient command to make disciples by holding forth the gospel. Paul lived every day of his Christian life with that day in mind, the day of Christ. That's why he was holding forth the gospel. If you ever wondered, why did Paul do the things he did? Yes, it was because Christ commanded him, but it was because he knew what was on the horizon, and he was trying to leverage every day and every moment to the glory of God. Paul's pleading with the Philippians here in verse 16. He's pleading with them. Please don't lean back. Lean in. Lean forward. And what's interesting is, He's not just saying, lean in. People are dying. Like, you need to extend the gospel to them or they will perish and they will go to hell. He could have said that. And that's true. But he says, lean in so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain towards them. He's literally saying, please, lean in. Hold forth the gospel because... I don't want my ministry to you have been a waste of time. I don't want my ministry of bringing the gospel to you to be a dead-end street. I want it to be breaking out, and there's many roads that come out of your life and this life as a church. And isn't that our prayer for us here? It is. It should be. That we would not be a dying church. That we'd be a living church because we worship a living God and His Word is alive and active. And it is saving people when we extend it to people. There is great joy in receiving the life-giving message. Listen to me. There is greater joy in extending the life-giving message. Greater joy. In the same way that there's great joy in receiving a gift, but there's greater joy in giving a gift. This gift has been given to us 
to be given to others. To hold, to not hold forth the gospel, what's the opposite of that? What is it if you don't hold forth the gospel? It's holding back the gospel. And that's what it is. And to hold back the gospel, it's not just disobedient to the Great Commission. Friends, it is dishonoring to Christ and his cross. It's not just dishonoring to Christ and his cross. It is despicable. It is despising the martyrs who have shed their blood so that the gospel could advance. And ultimately, through other people, it reached you because they said, I'm not going to be a dead-end street. Don't be a dead-end street. And you might be here this morning and go, I just don't know how. Can I just practically equip you for just one moment? Think of the people that God has put in your life. Step one. Step two, ask them this question today and this week. Hey, you know I'm a, I'm a Christian, right? We've talked about that. Or maybe you've got to tell them, hey, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm actually a Christian. I'd love for you to come to church with me on Sunday. But hey, I've got to ask you a question. I'm a believer. I know what I believe. But what do you think the message of Christianity is? Well, what is the message of Christianity? To which, hopefully, they'll say something like, well, I think it's, this. Or they'll say, I don't know. And you say, do I have permission to, to share with you what, what it is that I believe? Sure. Gospel. There you go. That's just one thing for this morning. We need to hold forth the gospel. Our obedience in holy living, our obedience in extending the gospel to the lost, it's going to change the landscape of this area. And we cannot expect, we just, friends, we cannot, our flesh just wants to go, yeah, but other people will do it. Like other churches, other people in this area will do it. Like what if I don't, there's other churches in McKinney, what, you know, what's the big deal if, if we at CRC, if we don't extend the gospel to other people, won't other people be saved? Other people can't obey Christ for you. They can't. Christ obeyed God's law for you. He fulfilled God's law for you, and that should be the springboard for obeying Him with what He's commanded you to do. You to do. You to do. Me to do. Which is hold forth the gospel. Turn in heads, transform in hearts. That is what we are commanded to do through holiness, through obedience. And obedience is meant to be a joy. That's my third and final point, and we'll close. Paul says this in verse 17, or yes, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Many think that he's referencing a potential death. You know, he's in prison in Rome. He's in house arrest. And he's on death row. He could potentially be executed. And some of the ways that they executed were cutting off people's head. And so thinking of a drink offering and that wine being poured out and splashing on the ground, I mean, many think that he's saying, he's alluding to the fact that I might lose blood. I might die for this, but I'm not sad. I'm not mad. I'm glad. Even if I'm poured out, I'm glad. And I rejoice with you all. And then he says, likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Don't pity me, Philippians. I am here for a reason. I'm here for you. I'm here for the king. Don't don't feel sorry. Pray for me. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for sending people to care for me and encourage me. I need it. But don't be sad for me. We have a shared joy. We have a shared partnership. He views himself as a drink offering. And there's so many references to this in the Old Testament. Exodus 29, 38 through 41 is a good one. But really what it is, is it's wine being poured out on top of a sacrificial animal that's being burned. And that wine is hitting the heat of either the altar or the animal. And it is turning into steam that's rising up. And that is to symbolize a rising of a sacrificial offering to God. It's worship. Paul viewed his life as being poured out for the sake of others. He didn't want them to pity him. He wanted them to rejoice with him. And we should do the same. We should view our lives as an offering to Christ. 
We should partner so that the gospel goes out of this gymnasium and into other homes in this area, into hearts. Our obedience is joyful. It's sacrificial. It's worshipful. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul's laid out the gospel so clear. He's laid out the mercy of God. And then he says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We need to remember that obedience is a good thing. It's a Christian thing. It's an act of worship in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obedience is a command from God. It is a witness to this lost world. It is a joy for us. And Jesus links obedience and joy in this way, and we'll pray. John 15, 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, if you obey, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to live a perfectly obedient life on our behalf for crediting his perfect obedience, his righteousness to our account when we put our faith in him. We thank you for being obedient to the point of death on the cross, Jesus. We, we thank you for that. We thank you for not slowing down in your obedience, not stopping short, but fulfilling what you came to do. We thank you for paying the penalty for our great disobedience to God in love. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and joy as a witness to this watching world. In Jesus' name, amen.